Good morning. So I was thinking about this uh, passage just recently. It's really been on my mind a lot. And it was uh, when Jesus gathered up his disciples and he just looks at a crowd of people. And this is found in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. And this is what Jesus says. Jesus looking out at this crowd. He has his disciples with him. And he says, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now, we're just thinking about the, the fact that Jesus looked around and he saw people and he felt compassion for them. And he recognized people's spiritual need. He saw life through the lens of eternity. And one of the things that, that I love is that Jesus was sharing his heart and he was training his disciples to see the world through the lens of eternity. And um, just for us this morning, it is so important as we go through life that we see life through the lens of eternity. I was thinking about Ecclesiastes, and the beginning of Ecclesiastes talks about the meaning that meaninglessness of things in life and finding satisfaction. But at the end of Ecclesiastes, there, there's some verses that just like kind of cause people to, you know, have like blow circuits in their mind as they read them. And at the end of Ecclesiastes, one of the things that, uh, one of the passages in, in chapter 11 is Solomon just says, hey, whatever you see, whatever looks good, whatever you want to do, do it. Just remember that God's going to bring you to judgment for these things. And people are like, what? Just go out, do whatever you feel like doing, but just know you're going to be judged? What? And the end of the book of Ecclesiastes is just saying God wants you to enjoy life. He wants you to look around. He wants you to do things that you enjoy. But don't forget God. At the end of Ecclesiastes, the book is wrapped up by just saying, when all has been seen and heard, this is what everybody needs to know. Fear God and keep his commandments. You know, we, we enjoy this life that God's given us, but we should live with a sense of spiritual urgency. You know, we're not just here to run around and eat at nice restaurants and do things. And even though there's nothing wrong with those kinds of things, life is so much more significant than the passing pleasures that we enjoy in life. Um, we need to see life through the lens of eternity. You know, um, when, I, when I was getting hired, Rick used to say, you know, the church is not a cruise ship, it is a battleship. And you know what? That is true. And I was thinking about what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.4. He said, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And we need to think about life from that perspective. One of the things that I like about our church mission statement is that I think it helps us focus. Now, our topic for this morning are what are the steps that we take to have a transformed life? That's the end of our mission statement. And I just didn't want to leave without saying, okay, so we know that, that transformation is real and possible, but what are we supposed to do? And so we're going to focus this morning on three important things that we need to do 
if we want a transformed life, if we want to help other people have the transformed life that is so necessary. So let's just look at our mission statement. I love it. I think it helps us focus our attention and direction. If you look at it, it says Foothills Church exists to glorify God. That's why our church is here. That is why you are here on this earth is to glorify God. Is that biblical? I don't know. Let's see. It says, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I think that's biblical. Let's look at the second thing. We exist to glorify God and to make disciples. Jesus gathers up his disciples um, and gives them a commission. And this is what he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So we're supposed to make disciples of everyone. And what is a disciple? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is salvation. Our goal is not just to fix people's lives on the outside. It's that a person in their heart would know who Jesus is. So baptizing them and then teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. So that our purpose of our life and the purpose of the church is to teach people everything God has said and how to obey it. To teach them not just how, but to teach them to obey it. So um, is making disciples, is that our purpose? I think, I think that's pretty clear. So how do we go about doing that? By unconditionally accepting people where they are. And I love the emphasis in our mission statement. Unconditionally, we don't, when a person walks in, we don't say, well, we don't accept you unless this, 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 and this. We just unconditionally accept people. We don't say to people, before you come into the church, make sure you clean up your life. Make sure you fix some things in your life before we accept you. It's this emphasis on loving and accepting people where they are. And let's see, is that biblical? Romans 15, 7 Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. And so, is that biblical? Yes. Some people misunderstand that phrase, and they think it means we worship people. We think it means whatever you think your truth is, well, we, you can have your truth. No, God accepts you where you are, but loves you way too much to leave you that way. As Christians, we love and accept everyone, but we love them way too much than to affirm things a person may commit to that are opposed to what God says. And so Romans 15, 7 makes it very clear. We accept people to God's glory. And then it says, while encouraging a transforming life in Christ. And we looked at 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God changes us. He doesn't save us and leave us the way that we were. He changes us. He gives us a new heart. And a new heart is reflected in a new way of living, a new way of thinking, a new way of behaving. And we're not just trying to force this external behavior on people. We're trying to encourage a heart change genuine salvation that results in a personal worship of God. And when a person has truly had their heart changed, and when a person is worshiping God, their life changes. 
because we're people who live out of our heart. We're people who live out of our affections. And so when our heart and our affections are growing uh, and being conformed more to the image of Christ, that reflects itself in behavior. And uh, by the way, um, we can never judge anybody else's heart, right? I mean, God judges the heart, and that's true. But one of the things that is our job in the church is to evaluate the health of hearts. And first of all, the health of our own heart. And do you want to know what is a window to your heart? There's two important things that tell you what's inside your heart. One is what do you say? Uh, that's out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. So what you say is a window into your heart and what you do. Remember when Jesus was talking to his disciples and he says it's not washing, it's not eating with unwashed hands that defile you, but all the things that flow out of a person's heart and then he lists behavior. And so that's a window into the heart, but we're never trying to just force change into somebody's life. We're, we're praying for and we're teaching and we're working toward the transformation of the heart. And so here's the question. Um, we're working toward transformation. We want to be transformed. We need to be transformed. So what do you do? And so this morning, I want to focus on three simple things that you've heard before. And uh, one of the things that I think is so important is for us, you know, often we hear things over and over. We just get blind to them. Um, have you ever uh, put a picture up in your house and eventually you don't even know it's there? You walk down the hallway, you don't see it. Like that's kind of what can happen with, with broken things in your house or messy things in your house. You don't even notice it. You're just so used to it. And these are three critical things that we need to do, three steps we need to take if we want our lives to be transformed. So let's jump into these three things. And uh, I'll just tell you what they are. The first thing is that we need to be people of prayer. We need to pray. The second thing that we need to do is we need to be people who receive God's word. And the third thing is that we need to be people that function properly in the church. Those are three things that you need. Anytime I'm talking to people who are struggling in their life spiritually, anytime I'm talking to parents about raising their kids and what they should be focusing on and emphasizing, it always revolves around three things, prayer, God's word, and church. And that's actually what we do. Um, as Christians, we are encouraging prayer, God's word, and functioning in a healthy way in the church. So let's uh, jump into these things. Now uh, let's start with prayer. Um, as you, uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 through 13. And I want to talk about prayer for a minute. These are some basic things, and we're going to look at prayer, we're going to look at the Word, and then we're going to look at a passage in the Bible that puts those two things together in an amazing way. Psalm 119. We're going to look at some verses from Psalm 119. Now, when we think about prayer, um, often people will say, oh, man, I don't know how to pray. I don't, I don't know what to do, you know. And it's like a, new, a person's a new believer, and they're in a group of people that are praying, and they feel self-conscious, and I don't want to do this. I don't want to pray. First and foremost, prayer is a conversation between you and God. And so it's an expression of personal, personal intimacy. It's talking to God 
who is our friend, the one that we love and that we worship. And uh, that was a primary element of Jesus' life. In fact, the disciples are hanging out with Jesus, and in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, after Jesus prays, his disciples look at him, and they see the priority that prayer has in his life. And just think about this. If prayer was a priority for Jesus, who is a member of the Trinity, if prayer is a priority for Jesus, what priority should prayer be in your life? And so the disciples look at Jesus after he prays and they just say, Lord, teach us to pray. They looked at him and they saw prayer in his life and they wanted that. So they asked that, that he would help them pray. Now, one of the things that's very important for us to understand is that prayer is not a chant. A prayer is not a spell. Prayer is not something that we approach superstitiously. Like, there are people who actually memorize prayers. And I've had people come to me as a pastor and just say, hey, Roger, uh, my dog is dying. Um, do you have a prayer for dying dogs? And, or some issue going on in their life? Roger, do you have a prayer for this that you can say? People approach prayer often like it's a spell. And can you memorize some spells that you can kind of say and then God's going to do things? That is not what prayer is. In fact, Jesus says, don't use meaningless repetitions like the Gentiles. Unbelievers memorize things and said them. One of the things I think is amazing is the Lord's Prayer often can become one of the most abused prayers. Jesus is teaching people how to pray, but you can get a bunch of people that just memorize this prayer and they just say it and think that by saying words, it's going to accomplish something. Prayer is a, an expression of a personal relationship with Christ. When you look at Matthew chapter 7, and we are going <laughs> to read Colossians 1.9, but when you read Matthew chapter 7, this is one of the things that God says. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one, who, the one who seeks finds. The one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, when his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your, will your father who is in heaven Give good things to those who ask him. When it comes to spiritual transformation, there is no greater need that you have in your life than spiritual transformation, than a life that is changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no greater need in anybody's life that you meet or that you love than that God would transform their life spiritually that they would grow and become the person that God wants them to be, that they would fulfill their purpose in life. There is no greater need. This is something that we should be praying for in our lives and in the lives of the people that we love. Uh, if you read Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, let's look at this. And we can see how this has worked out in the Apostle Paul's life. This is what he says. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So he is praying that people 
would know God's will, that they would understand what is true, what God wants for them. And then he says in verse 10, he says that you'll understand that, but what we understand is supposed to make it into the way we live. Look at what Paul prays in verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's what I like about that. Paul is constantly praying that these people's lives would be transformed by God's word, by the understanding of God's will, and that they would live it out. That's what we're supposed to be praying for people. But here's what I love is the way that passage ends. It doesn't end with that somehow we're trying to earn our salvation. Somehow we're trying to put ourselves into God's kingdom. No, salvation is a work that was accomplished through Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins. So we're not trying to be good enough for God. But when you become a Christian, your life begins to be transformed, and that's something that we should be praying for. So I just have a question. Um, when you look at your life, do you see spiritual transformation? When you wake up in the morning, as you interact with the people in your life, are their spiritual needs and are your own spiritual needs, are those the main thing on your agenda? Is that what you care for people about? When you're looking at life, if you're growing up and your kids are going through a hard time in life, they're going to school, they're getting picked on, maybe families are coming apart, maybe there's trials and difficulties within the home. Um, as you see those things, do you see it all from the perspective of, um, from a spiritual perspective? As your kids go to school and struggle, do you help them view their struggles from the perspective of a relationship with God? What, what God would say to this, how they should think and how they should feel about getting picked on at school. If you're struggling and, and you're just like, in my marriage, I'm struggling. And as there's battles within your home, is your focus to help your kids view that from a spiritual perspective? When you run across people who are struggling physically, when you're struggling physically, when your kids are struggling physically, are you helping them view every circumstance from the perspective of a relationship with God? Is that what we're praying for? Is that our greatest desire? Um, that it should be. Here's the encouragement when it comes to prayer. Um, we do need to learn how to pray. We do need to be committed to prayer. But here's an encouragement. I love Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Did you know that the Holy Spirit prays for you? If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit is praying for you. In fact, the Bible says when you don't know how you should pray, the Holy Spirit is praying for you. Man, that is encouraging. That is amazing. Um, did you know, you just go a few verses later, Romans 8, 34. Did you know that Jesus is praying for you? That's what one of the things that Jesus does. He intercedes for us. 
And so if your life is going to be changed, if your life is going to be transformed, prayer needs to be a dominating element of your life, something you do all the time. As you think that you pray, that you live in a state of constantly praying for people, uh, prayer needs to be significant. Often people's lives aren't transformed because they don't pray, and people's lives are not transformed because other people are not praying for them. Not only do you need to pray, but you need other people to be praying for you. Prayer is a priority, significant. Here's a second thing. We need to be people who are receiving God's word. God's word is a priority in a life that is transformed. Um, If you're a Christian, you should read the Bible every day. Um, That should be a habit in your life. And there's all different ways that you can prioritize reading God's word. There's all kind of Bible programs out there. But one of the most significant things that you can do is to read the Bible every single day. And I just want you to know that if you do not have the habit of reading the Bible every day in your life, um, that is a significant reason for a lack of of spiritual transformation. God's word is powerful. God's word changes people. When you look around at people in your life, when you consider your ministry to people, one of the most significant things that you need to be doing is exposing the people around you to God's word. You need to be putting it into your life and you need to be blessing others with it. Now, this is one of the things I kind of like to do this You find these priorities in the New Testament. Prayer is a priority in the New Testament. God's word is a priority in the New Testament. But you want to know one of the things you see? God never changes, right? So if prayer and if God's word is a priority in the New Testament, where else do you think it's a priority? Oh, okay. Hey, let's read a verse about that. And then we're going to look at the New Testament passage. Joshua chapter 1 verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. God's word is supposed to go into their heart and come out of their mouth. But you shall meditate on it day and night. Not only do we pray all the time, but we should constantly be meditating and thinking about God's word and how it applies to life and the truths and how those impact our life. That you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. You know, there's people who read that verse and go, yeah, that was written to Israel, and we're not Israel. Guess what? That's true. But did you know that the principle behind that verse has not changed? Uh, what What is he telling Israel? He's saying make sure that you're talking about God's word. Make sure you're meditating on it. Make sure that you are very careful to obey it because that brings blessing. Now, is that just in the Old Testament? I don't know. Let's check out James and see if it's the same there. James chapter 1 verse 21 says this, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. So get sin out of your life and receive with meekness receive with humility the implanted word take god's word receive it implanted 
which is able to save your souls. And so God's word brings salvation. That's one of the things when I think about sharing the gospel with people, I try to make sure I'm always quoting verses. I memorize verses and I I share those verses because my opinion, my words, the way I phrase things doesn't have power, but God's word has power. And so I want to be saying scripture to people. It's one of the things that I did when my kids were young. I was reading scripture to them. I wanted them to be under God's word. Why? Because that's where salvation flows from. In Sunday school, and we're not just telling kids nice stories. We want kids to receive God's word implanted and that they would be saved. When a person walks into this church, what we want for them is salvation. And that's something that flows out of hearing God's word. So receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. And what did Joshua say? He said, speak it. And meditate on it. And then he said, what? Be careful to obey it. Well, let's see if James has anything to say about that. But be doers of the word. And not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away And at once he forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and preserves, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. So God's word was intended to be obeyed. That's what Jesus says, make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded to you. And what did Joshua tell um, the Israelites? If you obey... What's going to happen? You're going to be blessed. Is that just an Old Testament idea, do you think? I don't know. I wonder what else James says. Uh, Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You ever see people whose lives are broken by sin, and they just have pain and sorrow in their life? Um, that often, almost always, is an expression of a disobedience of God's word. I'm not talking about trials. I'm not talking about difficulties. Uh, We can face difficulty in trials. In fact, you read through Scripture, and some of the most faithful people suffered, and, and they struggled. So it's not the pain and sorrow of life, but how often do we see people whose lives are devastated by a disregard of what God has said? What's tragic is often people live life in disobedience to God and they suffer and their lives are broken and they just think, why? It's, they feel like life is a random accident. When, when we live life disregarding what God says, that brings pain, sorrow, and difficulty into life. So um, Romans chapter 12, verse 2 when we think about a transformed life, we need God's word. And, and God tells us how we're transformed. Look at this in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How does our mind get renewed? 
Like we grow up, we live in a sinful world, we have sinful habits, we, we have sin pressed in and, and worldly philosophies pressed into our mind. How is our mind transformed? It's transformed by reading what God says. And what does the Bible tell us about transformation? It flows from a renewed mind. And that's why we need God's word in our life. Now, prayer, we don't approach prayer superstitiously. You know what else we don't approach superstitiously? <laughs> we don't approach the Bible superstitiously. Like I know people when they're having um, nightmares and stuff, they'll stick a Bible under their pillow. You ever met somebody who did that? Or people who feel like, you know, uh, the Bible's kind of like they watched some Dracula movies as kids, and if they ran around with the cross, Dracula would run away. And there's people who think, oh, man, if I have the Bible, I just need to bring that with me. And they view it like a good luck charm. And, and they say the Bible, that they'll quote verses to, th- to uh, things and about situations, and they actually use Scripture superstitiously. That is not the way we use Scripture We don't just like say verses and feel like verses are a magical chant. Do you have a verse for this or do you have a verse for that? If the verse is about understanding what God says and how to live and how to think, yes. But verses are not a spell either. Like think about what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Do you remember them? He says that you study the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but you're missing the fact that those scriptures testify about me. Um, how about knowledge puffs up? You ever met somebody who, man, the more they read the Bible and the more they can quote a verse, it becomes a source of pride and arrogance, and God's actually opposed to the proud. And so sometimes people, they grab this knowledge and they're learning, and it's like not, Scripture is not accomplishing the purpose that God wrote Scripture for because they're prideful and because they're blinded. Um, do you remember the uh, sons of uh, Sceva? The Jewish priests who were, when they were running around, um, they decided, hey, we want to cast out demons like the Apostle Paul does. And they went around and they were trying to cast out demons in the name of, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. They're, they're using, they're approaching life in this superstitious way. And this demon-possessed man looks at these guys. He says, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but I don't know you. And then he jumps on them and he beats them and they run away naked. There's often that instead of Scripture being a way that we internalize what God says and understand his truth and understand God's will and have a relationship with God, instead of that, sometimes people approach it and they just feel like, okay, I'm going to read these eight verses today and then I expect everything in my life to go well. They approach it like a spell. That is not what Scripture is for. But, you know, God's word... It is powerful. Do you remember Jesus said, um, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You know, God's word's powerful. So I want to just give us an example today um, from Scripture about how to pray and how to listen to God. You ever wonder, how do I pray and how do I listen? You ever thought about the relationship between prayer and and God's word. And I just want to encourage you, um, if you want to learn how to pray, if you want to learn how to hear from God, read Psalm 119 and think about it. Let's read the first 24 verses of Psalm 119. So if you have your Bibles, and you do, (laughs) go to Psalm 119, and we're going to read through 
a few verses, and I want to just think about these. Now, I'll tell you a little bit about Psalm 119. It's interesting, prayer in the Word, that the longest chapter in the Bible is a, is a prayer about God's Word. I mean, isn't that amazing that that is the longest chapter in the Bible? It's almost the center of your Bible. Like, I, I've sat there with a Bible and just tried to open it right to the middle, and every once in a while I'll hit Psalm 119. So it's the longest chapter in the Bible, and it's, it, and it's a most significant one. Now, one of the crazy things about this psalm is there's, it's in eight sections, and of, it's in, I'm sorry, it's in 22 sections of eight verses. Um, and the reason that it's in 22 sections is because the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. And so each eight verses starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so this is an amazing poem. We don't necessarily see that in English, but it is just so incredible. Now let's just read this and think about how should you pray. And I, I just think it would be a great thing um, if you wanted to learn how to pray, if, if every day when you were spending time in the Word, if you read eight verses of Psalm, Psalm 119, and you just read it and you thought about what is being prayed for here? That's how to pray. And, and not just that you repeat, repeat the prayer, but you think about what's being said. What is the heart? What is the motivation? And that you pray this for yourself and that you pray this for other people. That is a great way to learn how to pray is to just read Scripture and pray it. Follow the example set there. So Psalm 119, verse 1 says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. So it starts with just like an expression of God's goodness and a necessity and an understanding that blessing comes from obedience. So that's like the opening of prayer. What does is, what, what is Hebrews says? Anybody who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So this psalm just begins by saying, God, I know that you give blessing and I know that obedience to you is what brings blessing into my life. So it's that understanding that acknowledgement, that mental perspective of who God is. Look at verse 4, and here's where you're going to see the prayer. This psalmist is talking to God. So as he prays, he's talking to God. He says, you have commanded your precepts be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all of your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn of your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. I mean, he's just saying, God, you've given your word. It's my greatest desire to obey it, and I need you. And just that recognition that God's supernatural help in your understanding and obeying his word is actually his kindness and his care for you. Look at verse 9. How can a young way how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. 
I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In, in the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I mean, this is prayer. It's, it's about a relationship with God. Do you see how focused it is and just the recognition that everything God says is a gift? I mean, he loves this more than money. Um, is that, when you think about your life, is that true? I just got to tell you, the people that I know who are blessed and that God uses greatly, and I'm not saying that they don't struggle, I'm not saying that they're not sick, but when I think about the people that you see God's powerful hand in your life, this is an expression of their heart. When you see people that spiritually they're not powerfully used, they're abrasive, they're unloving, they're uncaring, they have brokenness in their life. It's people who don't have this attitude in their heart. Let's look at this third section, verse 17. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Have you ever met people that they take scripture and they twist it to say that they want it, what they want it to say? Or people who read verses and they don't like what they say and so they just explain them away or ignore them? Have you ever read something in scripture and not liked it? Um, I know for myself, one of the things I've read in scripture that I really didn't like was the whole idea of God choosing people before the foundation of the world. That was so significantly troubling to me. And there are so many things I have read in Scripture that I have not liked. One of the things that I think is amazing is that this psalmist is saying, God, open up my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. You know, if when we approach Scripture... And we don't, submit, we don't approach it with a love and a submission to God. Scripture can become for us what it was for the Pharisees. Uh, something that they're blind to, something that they use improperly, something that makes them prideful and arrogant. Um, prayer is an expression of a heart that loves God and is communicating with him. And when we read Scripture, that needs to be an expression of a heart that wants to hear from God an expression of worship. Look what he says in verse 19. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. So he's recognizing I'm just visiting the earth. My home is in heaven. Like that's an eternal perspective. Um, he says my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my, my delight. They are my counselors. 
Um, when you think about that, um, if, if you're a parent and you have young kids, did you know that that's your job, is to raise your kids, to pray for them, to teach them, to have that attitude toward the Lord? That is actually why God puts you on earth. That is why he put kids in your house, is so that you can love them, pray for them, point them to Christ. When, when your kids go to a football game and the coach is rejecting them and leaving them on the sidelines and they're losing, did you know that your purpose in life is to help your kids understand, I'm here to know and worship God. I'm here to learn to think about this situation from God's perspective. If your kid gets sick, breaks their arm, breaks their leg, that in that, yes, you love them, yes, you care for them, but your purpose is to help them view that from the perspective of what God would say. And did you know that your job as a parent is no different? Like, why am I saying this to a bunch of people who don't have little kids anymore? Here's why. Because your purpose in the church is no different than your purpose as a parent. That's what we're supposed to be doing with each other is to exalt God's word, to teach people, to encourage people, to think about everything through the lens of what God says and what a relationship with God is and a genuine relationship with the Lord. And going to football and realizing the coach doesn't hold my future in his hands. God does. Whether or not I'm successful or not successful, um, my, my job is to pursue the Lord and to be faithful with whatever God's put in front of me. My job is to be gracious and loving and servant-hearted and evangelistic to the people that God's put around me. I'm actually not on that team, first and foremost, to do well in football. I'm on that team. It's an opportunity to get to know people, to display God's character and how I live and how I think about people. And it's my opportunity to share the gospel. How often do people struggle in every area of their life? Because that's not what drives and motivates them. How often do people raise their kids and they think they're in school for an education? How often do we in the church approach people with a perspective of entertainment or any other kind of priority other than knowing God and living that out, knowing what God says and obeying that? You know, Psalm 119 that's three letters of the 22-letter alphabet. Um, it goes on. That's the entire book of Psalm 119. Let's consider this third thing functioning in the church properly. That's the third thing that it takes for us to be people who have a transformed life is to function properly in church. That's what Hebrews 10:24 says. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you see that eternal perspective? And it says, don't forsake the assembling together. Now, I was thinking about that. Um, uh, some years in youth group, I'd have kids that didn't come from Christian homes, and I was encouraging them and watching them grow. And one of the things that I recognized is that the most important thing I could do for these kids in youth group, it was not just the verses I taught them, it wasn't just the sermons, that the way that I could bless these kids was to teach them to function in the body of Christ, to show up, 
to use their gifts, to realize that you prioritize church over work, you prioritize church over sports, you prioritize church over whether or not you're tired. In fact, you go to bed so you can be in church on Sunday morning. That the fellowship in the body of Christ is, is a priority. That is the greatest gift that we give anyone is to teach them to function in a healthy way in the body of Christ. The greatest gift you give yourself is to show up every week. And we could approach that from a legalistic perspective, right? Okay, who wasn't here today? Let's check the bad Christians. And if you come on every week, okay, those are the good Christians. We don't think about anything from a legalistic perspective. There's times that there's a good reason to miss church. There's times that there's times people don't come. Um, and so it's, it's not this legalistic measurement and judgment toward other people, but you cannot be spiritually healthy if you don't function properly in the body of Christ. It says don't forsake the assembling together. Um, that needs to be a priority. And do you know what we do when we're in church on a fundamental level? What do you do in your personal life to have a transformed life? Well, you pray and you read the Bible. You know what we do in church? It revolves around prayer, prayer for other people, and God's word, the teaching of God's word, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We are people who are teaching and speaking God's word. That should be the priority of everything we do. I remember um, Michelle and I were going through a really challenging time just in our life. It was after we left our last church and before we came here. And I remember I went to church one Sunday. And because uh, we, we, hey, we taught our kids that and actually we lived that out. When I'm a pastor, I go to church every week. When I wasn't a pastor, bef- between when I was a Christian and I became a pastor, I went to church every week. Uh, when I was in the six-month gap between my last church and this church, I went to church every week, and I remember showing up to church one Sunday, and they were doing this presentation on the church mission, the church purpose. (laughs) You want to know what they didn't do in that? They didn't teach the word. It was an expression of we have this many teachers, and we're working on this, and we're doing, it was basically like a, a report, and I went home so upset. It's like our hearts were hurting. We needed God's word, and we showed up to church on Sunday morning. God's word wasn't there. Um, I was sitting next to a person, and this lady shows up, and and it was kind of interesting because I'm feeling that, but I kept it to myself. And there was this lady who showed up from the church, and she was sitting next to me, and she looked at me with just pain in her eyes, and she said, man, I can't take this. I need God's word in my life. I've been having so much trouble with my kids. So she's having struggles in her home. She's struggling as a mom, and she showed up to church, and guess what wasn't there that Sunday? Now, I'm not criticizing the church. It's a great church. They taught the word every week. But one of the things I thought about is I will never on a Sunday morning not teach the Bible, whether it's a little or a lot. And I thought back to my years as a youth pastor. It didn't matter what event we did. God's word was a part of it. If we did a sleepover, if it was a 10-minute devotion, if we were going to go anywhere, whatever we did, it included God's word. God's word needs to be a priority in the church. I think often we can forget why God put us here. And so we need to be people that are encouraging, 
and praying for and prioritizing the ministry of God's word. So if we want a transforming life, if we want a church that brings transformation, that's what we need. I'm going to close with this. Have you ever thought about your company and what kind of company you need to be and what kind of company you, you keep and what kind of company our church should be? 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. You want to know something? We're influenced by the people we're around. Um, you've heard this, the phrase, birds of a feather flock together. Often people's friendships are an expression of what's in their heart, but often people's friendships influence the direction of their lives. So here's my question for you. Is prayer a priority in your life? Is God's word a priority in your life? And how, do you, how does that work its way out in the way you influence your friends? Are you bad company or are you good company? Proverbs 13, 20, whoever walks with the wise become, becomes wise. You know what reading the word is? That's walking with God. That's walking with the wise. And we become wise. And if you're wise, that should be the influence you have. How about Psalm 119, 63? I just thought I'd throw that in there since we looked at Psalm 119. I am a companion of all who fear you of those who keep your precepts. Do you diligently look for people who have a passion and a love for God and a diligence to obey? And do you surround yourself with those people? Are you that person for the people around you? As you open, um, uh, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I just want to remind us as we think about this, it is so important for us to be committed to obedience, but that is never because we're trying to earn a place in heaven. Our righteousness comes from Christ. Look at 1 Peter 2.24. It says, He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, there's nothing magic in the, in the grape juice. Um, this is not like some spiritual thing that if you drink it, it's going to do something to you. We drink grape juice to remember the death of Christ. It is red like the blood of Jesus that was shed for our sins. And so we read this. And, or we drink this, and it reminds us what Jesus has done for us. Let's drink. Oh, I'll read the verse. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so eat the Eat the bread first. <laughs> in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink.
Lord, help us to be people who love you, who pray, that our standing before you is not based on our behavior, it's not based on our strength, it is based on the work that you did on the cross. We ask that you would bless us in your name. Amen.